We're going to be opening to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5. And as I said, I'm taking a break from Revelation for a few Sundays because I want to use the opportunity as we've come into a new facility and everything's kind of brand new to focus our attention on practical Christian living. Going back to the very foundation of who we are as believers, what we're doing here, and what we're supposed to be doing as a church. Because there are several essential, basic lessons that we really need to pay attention to believers, and, and we, we, we stop thinking about them sometimes. We sort of take them for granted unless they are rehearsed in our lives. In fact, if you've been going to church all of your life, then for you, some Bible teaching is like listening to the flight attendant give the pre-flight information. You know what I'm saying? Take a minute and locate the exit nearest you. Remember the exit could be behind you. In the uneventful, not the uneventful, but the uncertain or uh, unexpected uh, case that we might land on water, your flotation advice is, before, uh, is, is below you. Sometimes you get a demonstration about how to blow that thing up. And it goes on and on, and, and, and uh, nobody is paying attention, except the few people that this is their first flight, and they've got the card opened up, and they're trying to study, and they're searching for the exit. You can, you can always spot them. One a flight attendant who was really fed up with a lack of attention actually said, when the oxygen mask drops down, place it over your belly button and breathe normally. And nobody noticed. <laughs> but, you know, the familiarity with things is actually worth the risk in an area of our walk with God that is so vital to our spiritual growth. And so these sermons are not intended to be deep studies into mysteries we've never contemplated before, but healthy reminders that I trust will encourage us because some of the most preached sermons are often the least lived, if we're honest with ourselves. So last Sunday, I began to work through this familiar passage, Galatians 5, beginning at verse 13. And it says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to the flesh, but through love serve one another. And I called attention last week to this word freedom that Paul uses here twice. And he's talking, as we saw last week, specifically about freedom from the Old Testament Jewish law. The law that was based on the Ten Commandments, but also included 603 other commandments that, that, that built off of those ten. Now, why would Paul have to tell these Galatian believers that they didn't have to keep Jewish law? I mean, why would that be a, a thing to bring up? Well, mainly because there were a bunch of Jewish Christians, most of them Christians, we assume, who had grown up all their lives keeping the law. And, you know, it's really hard sometimes to break those old traditions, especially when you grow up hearing you have to do this. This is, this is what God requires. Uh, and, and, and think about that in their culture. It was right for them to obey the law. Jesus obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law as a believer, modeling it out for, for the people of, of, of his race, of Israel, of the people of his, of his country. And so it wasn't wrong for them to keep the law, but they had been doing this all their lives, and now they have come to faith in Christ, and they were telling the Gentile Christians around them, look, 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 you can't follow Christ unless you come through the law. You have to keep keeping the law. It was probably really nice for some of them to do this, because Gentiles of the Jews were like uncouth people. I, mean, I know we're basically all Gentiles here, if not all of us, uh, this morning, but... 
back in the day, you know, in, in, in the first century, the Gentiles were like the, the really uncouth ones that would have these nasty habits, the Jews would think, and they didn't eat the right foods and everything. And, and you weren't even allowed to go into a Gentile's home if you were a Jew. And so for them to say, hey, you got to keep the Jewish law now that you're a Christian was kind of self-serving. You know, they're trying to clean these guys up a little bit uh, so that they could be in the church. But Paul wasn't having any of this because he knew that one of the reasons the gospel was good news is that Christ died for our sins in order to release us from what Paul called the bondage and imprisonment of the law. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul calls a gospel that brings back people under the law a different gospel than the one he preached. And if you're familiar with that passage, you know what he says about people who preach a different gospel in chapter 1. Because Jesus died to save us from the penalty of the law. Not to put us back under another law, but to free us from having to live our lives following legal code to try to gain some acceptance from God. Because what Jesus Christ did to save us, we are already fully accepted by God. Do you realize this? We're accepted by God and loved by Him as much as He loves His beloved Son. That's a staggering truth. John explores that in his Gospel mainly. God loves us that much. We're already accepted. We don't have to earn our favor. We can disappoint God like a father and and come and confess to him and continue to walk in him. That process goes on and on all our lives. But he never stops loving us like our father would love us. Now, this is the point where we say, now, wait a minute. Are you saying that when we come to Christ for salvation, God simply doesn't care how we live anymore? I mean, there's no more law, right? And so we can do whatever we want? Well, of course not. And I addressed this a little bit last week. Nor would you want to just do whatever you wanted to if you're really a Christian. That would start bothering you. That's not the way Christians think. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, our goal to please him. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all of the glory of God. In Colossians 1, 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is the way Christians think. But there is a remarkable difference between trying to live for God by keeping legal code, by following law, and living for God by aiming to please him because we love him and desire to serve him. And to make this maybe a little more understandable, I'd like to explain it this way for a few minutes this morning as we get going. Let's say that there's a boy about age 12 and he meets this master carpenter. And he looks at what this guy builds, these high-quality desks and shelves and wardrobes. And, and you know, we don't do that kind of thing anymore. Uh, everything's kind of like uh, basic, minimalist, you know, because it's easier to put together, you know. And it kind of reflects the mood of culture. Uh, culture, is, it doesn't really exalt things of beauty anymore. And, and so uh, we, we sort of have a, a, a fast food kind of culture. We get it done right away. Whereas in the past, people would spend their whole lives making something ornate, and they were thinking because of the transcendence of God. And we just don't see that in our secular culture anymore, and so you see it reflected in the, in, in the furniture as well. But, but this young boy sees this beautiful stuff, and he's like, you know what? I want to know how to do that. I want to I build this beauty. And so the boy admires it so much, he wants to study and learn. And the carpenter, this master carpenter, says to him, okay, I will take you as my apprentice. 
and I will teach you to make the beautiful things like I do. But you have to promise to do exactly what I tell you to do. And the boy says, okay. And he becomes an apprentice working for this master carpenter. Now, the schedule is very demanding. Every aspect of the boy's life is regulated because he has to be trained. The boy must be out of bed by 6 o'clock every morning and have himself ready to start work at 7 o'clock. And he has to stop working for 15-minute breaks at particular parts of the day. His meals are regulated. There's a certain time he can stop for lunch, certain foods he's allowed to eat or not eat. There's a certain uniform or, or bib or whatever they wear that he has to wear. He must also read and study various subjects so he can be educated in other areas. And, and this, this whole program of learning is highly regulated. And he has to work with specific tools and he has to learn each tool and how to use it, how to cut and how to shape and how to join. And the master carpenter has a very specific way that everything has to be done and, and everything has to be laid out. And so his life goes on for years and years. And many of you have heard about the phenomenally rigorous schedules that Olympic athletes keep you know, to build their bodies and their skill to be the best in the world. Well, this apprenticeship for this boy is kind of like the Olympic training for woodworking, okay? He's, everything is completely regimented. Only this boy has no choices in his life, basically. He is punished if he sleeps past six in the morning or if he eats something he's not supposed to or chooses to dress differently than he's instructed, and he's equally praised and rewarded when he follows instructions, and especially as he turns out a good project. And if the boy ever starts to think that the training is too rigorous or hard, or that the sacrifice is too great, he remembers he is learning to make beautiful things like the master. And he keeps going. Well, one day, when the boy has grown into a young man, he's a skilled craftsman himself. And a wealthy estate builder sees his work and he's so impressed, he offers him a job. Come work for me. I'll give you a beautiful home to live in with a state-of-the-art wood shop. I want you to help trim out the houses I'm creating and I want you to build these beautiful pieces of furniture for them. And the master carpenter tells the boy, look, this is what I've been training you for all along. Take the job. Go. And, and do a really good job and do what I taught you to do. So he takes the job and moves into this big, beautiful house and his new employer meets with him and gives him a list of all these beautiful pieces he wants him to build. But as he turns to go, the young man says, but, wait a minute, wait a minute. I still have so many questions. And he says, like what? Well, when am I supposed to get up in the morning? And, and what, when am I supposed to start work? When am I supposed to take my breaks? When am I supposed to eat? What am I supposed to put on? And the new employer is like, what? He, he says, you have the freedom to make all those choices. Just do whatever you want. I just want to see beautiful furniture in the end. So the first time, for the first time since he became an apprentice, this young man is free to do whatever he wants. He could decide when to sleep and how long. He could eat anything he wanted to. He could wear what he wanted to. He could order his wood shop the way he wanted to. He was completely free. So the next day, what do you think he did? Sleep till noon. Eat a bunch of junk food. Uh, play video games for hours. Go without showering. You know, not take care of himself. You know, what would a guy do, right? And you don't have to confess anybody, okay? But you've got complete freedom... What would you do? You know what happened the next morning? He got up at six o'clock. You already saw it coming. He got out of bed and he thought, 
I get to build beautiful furniture today. I'm set up in this house. I've got this great wood shop. And he could not wait to get to work. And he was efficient and he was regimented. He might not have done everything exactly the same way he had been trained, but he did something like that. And you know what? It was so freeing to him to be able to make these decisions, not on the basis that he was going to be punished if he didn't follow this law, but on something else. He wanted to make something beautiful and he wanted to please his employer. And someone might have come along and said, why are you being so hard on yourself? I mean, take it easy. Why are you getting up at six in the morning? You don't have to do that. No, he's making you. Don't work so hard. Wear what you want. Eat what you want. Why are you still doing all those things that you were doing when you were an apprentice? And he would have said, well, why would I want to do other things that are going to make me a worse carpenter? I've been given everything I need to do something I truly love for someone to whom I am entirely grateful. And I'm not going to let anything spoil that. Now, there's a lot of ways this analogy breaks down. But this little scenario helps us to see sort of in the big picture the essence of living under the law and freedom from law. Under law, my speech and actions are regulated by punishment and reward. I mean, the the Jewish law was given so that God's people would know everything to do in almost every situation, legally. And the law kept me living in a way that pleases God so that I learned to love him. But living apart from the law, my love for God causes me to discipline myself so that I can be pleasing to him. Do you know what Paul says about the law in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24? He says that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith in Christ has come, faith in the death for his sins and his resurrection, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the ESV translation. Do you know what guardian means? It's actually the Greek word from which we get our English word pedagogue, child trainer, teacher. Technically, technically, uh, the pedagogue in the culture or the guardian was the person in the household that was hired to make sure the children got to school and got their education or got their apprenticeship. That's what the law did to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. It was training them like children so that they would know what serving God and loving him looks like. But just as adults no longer need a child trainer or a guardian, when Christ came, he made a new, more mature way for us to please God. And last week we noted that Paul has a warning for us about that. He says, you were called for freedom to make, not to make bad decisions, but to make good decisions. You can choose to do things that will please God, just as this young apprentice was, was finally freed to choose to do good things. But Paul says, you use your freedom you have through Christ to serve one another. And that's what we talked about last week. We, we do have freedom. We can make choices. We can, we can please God or say no to God. If we keep saying no to God, we have to question whether or not that spirit is in us driving us to love God. But if we uh, are making choices to please God, is because of the life of God within us. And he's, Paul is warning us here, we can use our freedom as an opportunity to the flesh. But that's not the way we live. We live by serving one another. Now, the question remains after last week. 
What then is this new and more mature way for us to please God apart from the law? How are we driven by a love for God to do the things that please him rather than the things that please our flesh? That's what Paul explains starting in verse 16. So let's read together from verse 16 down through verse 26. Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, in other words, the list is not exhaustive, Against such things, there is no law. In other words, there is no law, there's no Jewish law regulating these things. These are products of the Holy Spirit. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, in other words, if we have the Spirit of God within us, and we do if we're believers... We even read about that in, in, our, in our public reading in John 1 this morning. Jesus Christ baptizing with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, the title of this particular sermon, which I am going to begin today and uh, get quite a ways into, but then part two will be a week. It'll be on the 17th, okay, Lord willing. Uh, this, this sermon is entitled, The Dynamics of Walking in the Spirit. And that word dynamics refers to how something works to bring about development or growth or change. That's what the word dynamics refers to. So it's a perfect word to refer to the kind of working that this passage is talking about. Because in our Christian lives, we should not be satisfied to remain as we are, but we ought to expect to see development in our spiritual walk, growth in our knowledge of the Lord and His will for us, and positive steps that we are taking, that we can point to in our lives right now, positive steps that we are taking to serve the Lord more faithfully. We ought to see that. We ought to expect it. It ought to bother us if we don't see that. We don't see some change. But how does that change take place? Does the Lord just leave us to say, okay, this, this is the goal. Just do as hard as you can to, to get there. No, that, that, that might be like living under law. And centuries and centuries of his people living under law like that have shown us what that looks like. It doesn't work, ultimately, because... Uh, of, of the people trying to keep the law. The law is good. Paul calls it holy, righteous, and good. But the people trying to keep it are weak. And if, if we did succeed in keeping the law, or at least we thought we had kept it, we'd become like the Pharisees in the, in the first century who were arrogant and judgmental and difficult for others to be around. 
if, you, if you're the one guy keeping all the rules, okay, or girl, I don't, you know, either one, um, you probably are annoying somebody, okay? So, you know, don't make too big of a deal about it because uh, you struggle like everybody else. And some of us are just personality-wise more driven in that area than others. Sometimes it comes down to that. So God, through the cross work of Christ, gave us not something, not a program, not a system. He gave us someone. As the benefit of the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus poured out the person of the Holy Spirit on those who believe. He baptized them with the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit indwells each person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8 that if we do not have the Spirit of God, we don't belong to Jesus Christ. So every one of us has the indwelling Holy Spirit. And let me just say as an aside, we're not going to get any more of the Holy Spirit than we already have. Some people talk about getting more of the Spirit. That's not in the New Testament. We are given the Holy Spirit. We, we are dwell with the Holy Spirit. We may understand the dynamics of following Him more. We may cooperate more with the Spirit. We're, we're, we've got all the Spirit we're going to get as believers. The question is, how does this work? And are we paying attention to it? And are we following what God has told us in the right way? And so the dynamic of the Spirit's work in our life and our response to Him causes us to grow and change, to sin less, to obey more, to follow Christ, transforming us into faithful followers of Jesus Christ, completely apart, completely apart from Jewish law. The first two elements of that thesis statement I'm going to deal with this morning, the part about a separate from Old Testament law, I'm going to emphasize that when we come back. Uh, the next time. So this morning, I want to begin to unpack this text by taking a closer look, first of all, at the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. There's a positive and negative aspect to the Spirit's work. I don't mean negative in the sense that it's bad. I'm just saying that there's something he's positively doing and something he's not doing. So positively, the Holy Spirit guides us. What do I mean by that? Well, I want you to notice what the work of the Spirit uh, is, is, is described uh, by in this text. In fact, if you look down to verse 16, verse 18, and verse 25, you see three verbs that all are connected to the ministry of the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the Spirit. Verse 18 says, if you're led by the Spirit, so there's a leading of the Spirit. And verse 25 says, keep in step with the Spirit. It's a different word than when the, when the word walk. It's more specific. And these are not three different types of actions. They're actually simply different verbs describing the same action. The phrase walk in the Spirit in verse 16 is better understood if we say walk by the Spirit. It literally means walk by means of the Spirit. If you're studying Greek uh, here, uh, this is an instrumental use of the dative. Okay? It means we're doing something uh, because God has given us the instrumentality to do it. We're walking literally by the Spirit, by means of the Spirit. In other words, the way we walk or live our Christian life, what we say, what we do, what we think, should be a walk that is motivated by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, look at the second verb. Paul speaks of being led by the Spirit. And if you are being led by the Spirit, the idea is that you are following the Spirit. So walking by means of the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit is leading me, guiding me along, and I am following where the Spirit leads. Now, we all follow guides. If we, for instance, go on a formal hike into the wilderness to uncharted territory, uncharted to us, 
and we sometimes people get a guide so they don't get lost and don't, don't get in trouble. And, we, and that guide walks ahead, and, and we follow along. You go on horseback riding, sometimes you get a guide. Uh, if you go and tour uh, something like a building or a city, you follow a guide uh, through the city. And so maybe following the Spirit for you conjures up this image of a Spirit going on before you, and you're simply following along. But there's a third verb that makes this picture even clearer. Paul says in verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit. And the verb keep in step, you know what? It's actually a military kind of verb. It's a marching term. You've probably seen soldiers marching together in a group and their, their steps are perfectly in unison. And this completes the picture of what it means to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. As we walk, we act and we speak and we think And we do so by staying in lockstep with the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit says to go or to do or to speak, we obey Him fully and immediately. And He says to stop what we're doing or what we're about to do. We put the brakes on. We stay in step with the Spirit. That's what He's telling us here. Now, what exactly does this look like? Is there this little voice in my head telling me what to do all of the time? Well, I wouldn't call it a voice, audible voice, necessarily, but I think that we all know what it's like, right, to have this unusually strong sense that we ought to be doing something that we're not doing, or we ought to stop something that we are doing or about to do, or that this is a good plan, or that this plan has some doubts to it. And as a Christian, have you ever had that sensation as if God were actually speaking to you? I've heard people explain it a lot of different ways, but as if God were actually speaking to you, saying, when you see somebody, you know what, you should go stop and apologize to that person and ask forgiveness because you know you offended them. Have you ever had that before? And you kind of smile and nod and everything surface, but you know there's an offense there and neither of you are recognizing it. If you're a believer, the Spirit is saying, you need to take care of that. Or maybe God says, you should greet that person and make that person feel welcome when you, when you see them around, maybe not here, but somewhere else. Or you should stop and help that person when you see they're struggling with something. Or maybe the Spirit has said, you should stop talking about yourself and ask that person you're talking to about them for a few minutes. Or you shouldn't be watching this. Or you shouldn't be doing this. Or you should say yes to that. Or you shouldn't have said yes to that. And I think you know what I'm talking about. That's the Spirit guiding us If we will listen, this is not a mystical thing. This is something the scripture tells us is happening. Otherwise, how could Paul tell us to walk by means of the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, and to keep in step with the Spirit? That's the positive aspect of the Spirit's work. There's a negative aspect to the Spirit's work. Not only does he guide us, he constrains us. He, he, he urges us to do certain things or not certain things. He also keeps us back from certain things. 
He pushes back against our sinful desires. This is how Paul explains it in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to. And there's, there's a lot of uh, phrases in the original language to unpack and to put together in this statement. It, it's not really clear when you first read it. But it really does say, I think this is a pretty good translation, it really does say exactly what it seems to say here. That there's this pushback that the Spirit has in our lives against the things our flesh wants to do. For the believer in Christ, what Paul describes as a constant struggle that we should be aware of. It's not a bad struggle. It's actually one of the blessed consequences of knowing Jesus Christ. In fact, it's one of the reasons that we know we're really saved. I'm talking about this pushback on our sinful desires that we're aware of once we place our faith in Christ and God changes our hearts and we desire for the first time after we're saved to do His holy will. There's this new level of conviction of sin that we didn't know before. Before we were rescued from sin, we could do things that displeased God and it wouldn't really bother us. But once the Holy Spirit is born within us and we become a new creation, as Paul says, there is suddenly a divine arm pushing back against our sinful desire and saying no to that sin. So now the desires of the flesh, which is Paul's term here for the things we want to do, are against the Spirit, and the Spirit is pushing back against the flesh. And Paul says these two desires are opposed to each other to keep us from doing the things that we would do if we didn't know Christ. That's the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. That's part of the dynamic. And that struggle never leaves us until we are with the Lord and our sinful desires fall away, or unless we grieve the Holy Spirit and quench His ministry in our lives, which is a subject for another time. Now, I want uh, you to know that I am like probably many of you in the sense that I was saved at a pretty young age and I do not remember consciously this huge life of sin falling away and this new life of Christ flooding in. uh, There's plenty of times in my life where I had to turn from sin. I'm not saying that's not true. But you know what I'm talking about. We hear sometimes testimonies of people who have really gone away from the Lord or maybe uh, they have not been a believer for a long time and God dramatically saves them and they just, they, they could describe their whole life as something new, like the scripture says. But I have heard some of your testimonies and I have several friends who were saved later in life who can attest to this change when the spirit began working. I had a, an assistant and I, I might have mentioned his testimony years ago uh, in, in, a, in a, either on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whatever, but it, it strikes me so much uh, when, when, I, when I heard uh, his testimony of, of growing up in a public high school, doing everything you would normally expect any public high school guy to be doing. Friday night, there's always a party. There's usually drugs there. and There's at least alcohol there all the time. And the girls and everything you can imagine was going on in his life. And he, uh, was, he was so bad off. He got into so much trouble that his uh, mom kicked him out of the house. He had to go live with his stepdad. And his stepdad was a believer and said, you're going to come to church. And he, he took him to this hellfire and brimstone, fundamentalist preaching kind of church. And, and he went kicking and screaming. Uh, and he had to sit there and he had to listen. By like the second or third Sunday, he said by the end of the sermon, he couldn't wait to get down the aisle. And he went down and gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ and became a believer. I mean, 
no doubt about it. And nobody was controlling him. Nobody was telling him what to do. Uh, his parents didn't know what to do with him. So that week, he said, come Friday night. He did the same thing he did every Friday night. He went, he went to the party. But he said he was under so much conviction the whole time. He just could not wait to get out of there. He left early and he said, it was the last time I ever did that. Nobody told him he had to do that. It, w- it was the ministry of the Spirit beginning in his life. About a year later in his, in his Christian growth, uh, he had met some friends and, uh, who were believers and they, they were at the wilds in North Carolina. He said, hey, it's a Christian camp. You ought to come up uh, during the summer. See what we do up here. You know, they, they have preaching three times a day. You can come to the service in the evening. He's like, okay, I'm going to go. So he got off work I, I, probably on a Friday night and he's driving up to the wilds and he tells the story that, you know, he's, he's cranking his loud, metallic, you know, music, you know, headbanging or whatever. I don't know if it's called headbanging anymore, but that was a term they used when I was growing up. And, uh, he, you know, he, he says, as I got closer to the wilds, he was like, you know what? I don't know if I should be listening to this. I mean, this is, this is a Christian camp and this is the wilds. And, ah, it's okay. And he, he turned it up a little bit and he said, the closer I got up the windy road to camp, but the heavier the conviction got. And he said, finally, I couldn't stand anymore. He said, because I was like half a mile from the campground. I pulled over, took all of my music, all my CDs probably is what it was at the time, and I walked out into the woods and just threw them there, and I drove onto the campsite with a clear conscience. He totally got rid of his music. Ken Collier later said, oh, no wonder we had kids listen to all this music that summer. We couldn't figure out where it was coming from, where it was coming from. They were finding it in the woods. No, he was just kidding when he said that. Uh, but but that's, what, that's what he did. And, and it wasn't anybody instructing him. They didn't come and say, now, if you're a Christian now, therefore you've got to do this and this and this. Now, by the way, I, I, I'm, please, whenever you talk about a subject like this, uh, you get accused of falling off either side of the horse. There's, there's wonderful reasons for godly people to come along and say, you know, as a believer, this is a really good thing to follow in your life, or it's, it's good to do this and not that. Why do you think we have the New Testament where Paul gives us so much instruction about how to live the Christian life, even though we're not under law? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just making the point that in the, in the life of a young man, even without anybody instructing him that he needs to do this or that, the Spirit himself is changing and growing this person. And that's what he wants to do in our lives. No matter how long you've been a believer, no matter how, how saved you are, God wants to continually grow you. And that's what the Spirit does for us. He graciously works in us to guide us to obey and follow Christ. He helps to transform us into the image of Christ. That is part of the dynamics of his working. But there's another aspect of these dynamics that I want to say just a few words about before we close this morning. And that is aspect number two, our response to the Spirit. Because our response is part of the dynamics of this process. As we've seen, the Spirit works in guiding us and constraining us. It's a work He does in every believer. But we have to yield to the Spirit. We have to say yes to the Spirit if we're going to be led into the will of God. Now, some of you want to know, is that still small voice, whatever we call it, right? Is that little voice infallible? Does it always guide us exactly the right way? Of course not. Nothing we do is infallible. Now, the Spirit's infallible, but that whole process, the dynamics, the working of of His conviction in my life and and my being led, because there, there can be human 
uh, error in that process because we are part of the dynamic. It is not infallible. We can make mistakes. We can be driven by false guilt. We can be overly sensitive in an area because of our past experiences. We can be too cautious about some things and end up offending people. Or we can not be cautious enough and end up displeasing the Lord. However, I think we can have greater assurance that we are really following the leading of the Spirit in four ways. I'm going to mention these very briefly this morning. First of all, we can read and know and study the Word of God. Now listen, we know this already, but we need to be reminded. The greater our knowledge of God's Holy Word the greater our assurance that we will be walking in a way that pleases the Lord because the Holy Spirit himself guided the authors of the word. The holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God is not going to contradict his word. He's never going to lead us in a way that runs contrary to the word of God. If somebody says, I'm being led by the Spirit, and you're looking at the scripture and thinking, well, wait a minute, this does not seem to be what the scripture says at all then you have a right to be very discerning and make a judgment call on that. I don't mean judge them in the way Jesus says in Matthew 6. I'm just talking about, or Matthew 7. Uh, but I'm talking about being discerning about whether or not to follow that person, whether or not to listen to that person. And so reading the Word of God and knowing the Word of God gives us greater assurance that we are truly following the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives. Secondly, pray for wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. Why are you coming to me again? He never says that. And it will be given him. Ask the Lord to help you. Especially when you have to face a decision. Ask him for guidance. Say, Lord, may the, the, the reading of your spirit be quickened. May I recognize what you're doing. We'll ask him for wisdom. And God says, I will give you that wisdom. And so if we're not praying about this decision, how do we know that the Spirit is leading? Third, seek godly counsel. Ask godly people what they think you should do. That's a biblical concept. In other words, other more mature believers who have spent their lives walking by the Spirit... They've crossed a few bridges. They've had to make some tough decisions. They've weathered some storms. And they have come to know God and how to please Him. Not perfectly. They're fallible like we are. But they have seen a few things. They've been with the Lord. And the Lord can really use them to encourage you in the right direction. That's why we have each other in the church. That's why we have the church to begin with. And finally, there is a fourth way that we can have greater assurance that we are really following the Holy Spirit. And I think this is one of the most important. And I think it's often overlooked. And if you can't think of what I'm about to put up here as the fourth one, that makes my point. That it is often overlooked. And it is simply this. You have to want to be led by the Spirit. Because when it comes to wanting to do God's will, we can all talk a pretty good game in our minds. But following the Spirit means willingness to change. Willing to go a different direction. Willing to say no to some things. And yes to other things, no matter what people think of us. So we can't just pretend to want to know God's will. 
if we're going to walk in the Spirit, we have to really want to know God's will. And God's not hiding it from us. In fact, this verse came to mind. I'm preparing the message uh, on Jeremiah 29 right now. And God says in, in verse 13, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What that verse doesn't mean is that God is making himself scarce. So we have to play some kind of divine game of hide and seek to find God. God's like, I, I've got your will here, and it's my perfect will, and you need to find it, but you better look. You better seek with all your heart, or else you're not going to find out what it is. That's not exactly what he's saying here. He simply means, if you really want to know me, if you really want to understand my will for you, then you'll find it. I'm not hiding it. Here it is. If you'll look, if you'll listen for my will. That's why I believe that the Spirit in Scripture is depicted as that small voice. The Spirit is omnipotent. The Spirit is powerful. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity. He was there when the world was created. He is, he is powerful. But He will not shout at us. We will not hear His voice drowning out all of the other voices we let into our lives. In order to hear Him, we have to be quiet and listen with an eagerness to want God's will for our lives. So walking with other godly believers, staying in the Word, praying for wisdom, and yearning to know God's will is the way that the Lord has given to us to follow Him and to obey Him and to know the blessedness of life lived with Him. I know for many of you, this is like living the Christian life 101. But it is at the center of our growth in Christ and our success as a church. The Lord promised, I will build my church. There's no doubt he's going to do that. But we want to be in a position where he can do it for us here in Traveler's Rest. It's possible to have the Spirit and not be in step with the Spirit. So we need to pray that God will build within us that eagerness to yield to the Spirit of God so that we will follow him wherever he leads in our lives. Father.